Good morning. It's good for us to be together. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. Today we'll look at verses 18 to 25. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, as we return to our series on 1 John, we ask that you might take your inspired, inerrant word and apply it to our hearts, that we might not be just hearers of the word, but doers as well, that we might understand your truth and live it out, that it might transform our thinking and our living. We ask and invite your spirit to guide us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. I wonder how many of you have heard of Operation Grife. If you uh, study World War II, you probably know Operation Greif. It was during the Battle of the Bulge, the 75-mile line in the Ardennes between the Allied troops, particularly the Americans and the Brits, and the German Axis troops. It was at the end of 1944, the beginning of 1945. The Battle of the Bulge was a particularly violent battle, leading to up to 100,000 casualties for Nazi Germany and about 80,000 casualties for the Allies. It was Hitler's last attempt to keep the Allies from marching on Germany and eventually getting to Berlin. Now, if you know anything about Operation Greif, it was illegal. We have a phrase, all is fair in love and war. That is not true. There are international laws that govern a fair war. A violation of those laws could lead to crimes like the Nuremberg trials after World War II. One of the violations is you cannot take the uniform of your opponent and put it on and try and infiltrate your opponent's army. Well, that was Operation Greif. Hitler devised this plan. He wanted to find up to 3,000 German soldiers in the Wehrmacht, the German army, who not only spoke passable English, but understood our idioms, our phrases, and even our culture and our history. His idea was to get 3,000 uniforms, Brit and American uniforms, and 300 American and Brit jeeps and trucks, and to take 3,000 of his soldiers to infiltrate the Allies and to destroy some of the communication. Well, when he went to look for his 3,000 soldiers in the Wehrmacht that understood our language, our culture, and history, he actually found 10 experts. He found another 300 that had passable English but didn't understand our idioms, our history, or our culture. And then he took about 3,000 additional German soldiers who knew no English, and he gave them all British and American uniforms to try and infiltrate the Allies, the American and British Army. What was the success? It was quite mixed. 
they did manage to change some signs around. In fact, an entire U.S. regiment, instead of heading towards the front lines, because the signs had been turned around, they head away from the front line. They managed to pull some signs in minefields, resulting in some allies being murdered, killed by mines. They did manage to disrupt some of the commands that came from the high command. They did manage to get the 35th Armored Division shot upon. There was some Americans thinking that they were shooting upon the enemy. And then there were a few humorous things. You see, when the Allies understood the infiltration by the Axis power, they began not to trust the uniforms, but to ask questions. Specifically, questions about our capitals, or more important, questions about sports. So when General Bruce Clark's Jeep was stopped, the general was asked, hey, what league do the Chicago Cubs play in? Now we who root for the Brewers, we know it's the National League, or in my opinion, they play in the Little League. And, uh, but the general said the American League and was actually arrested for a few hours until it was clear that it was an American general, not an infiltrator. So how did Americans handle this Operation Greif? They devised a plan to begin to identify infiltrators. That's what the text is about. John is worried not about infiltrators in a war, but a spiritual war. He's worried about Wolves in sheep's clothing, individuals who infiltrate God's church, who teach false doctrine, who are false teachers and false prophets. And he warns us that the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more we will have false teachers, false prophets, the spirit of Antichrist, minimal Antichrists, or many Antichrists, until the final Antichrist comes. That's what the text is about. I want to pick up in 1 John. Let's go ahead and read chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Children. That's John's word for believer in Christ. Children, it is the last, the eschaton hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. That is, if someone does not abide in Christ, it's not that they lost their salvation, they didn't have salvation. They went out from us that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. At the moment in which you came to Christ, the Holy Spirit entered your heart. And you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son is the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. 
this is the text from John. He begins by saying that we are in the last, the eschaton hour. So we're going to have to talk about that. But prior to that, I think he wants us to evaluate what makes a healthy church, what makes a good church. So let's explore that. What does make a good church? What does make a healthy church? Is a good church one that has comfortable chairs? Well, that would be strike one for Highland. Is a good church one that has a dope-lit, in-fleck senior pastor? I don't even know what I just said. I, I know that these are the words that teens use today. So that would be like strike two. We fail on that one. Is a good church one in which you have like a concert type worship experience that you don't participate, you watch? Well, that would be strike three. Is a good church one where you make business acquaintances? Is that why you go to church? No, that would be strike four. Is a good church one in which you have minimal responsibilities? You don't ask people to get involved or to give? No, that would be strike five. Is a good church one that minimizes Words like sin and transformation and repentance. Now that would be like strike six. What is a good church? A good church, a healthy church, is one that focuses on the word of God. That focuses on the centrality of Christ. That isn't focused on a politic. Isn't focused on making people feel good. It's focused on Christ, the Word of God, to penetrate our lives, to transform us, that we become incrementally more and more like Jesus. That is a good and a healthy church. Yet, surprisingly, John tells us that in a good church, we can expect imposters, infiltrators, wolves in sheep's clothing. Or in the words of today, we can expect the spirit of Antichrist to try and penetrate a good church, or even lesser Antichrist, wolves in sheep clothing, to make their way into a church. In fact, John says, we know that we're in the last days when that happens. Now that phrase, last, eschaton, what does it mean? The last hour? Well, does that mean like the last 60 minutes before Jesus Christ returns? At what in Latin we call the rapture, or in Greek we call the parousia, the coming? No, eschaton, last, doesn't mean 60 minutes. It doesn't mean the last hour in that we have 60 minutes and then Jesus comes. Actually, that last hour is the period of time between Christ's ascension, 40 days after his resurrection in Acts 1.11, and when he returns, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 to 18, with the trumpet sound, when the dead in Christ, the bodies will be raised and the believers will be taken, raptured up into the presence of God. Everything in between 40 days after his ascension to when he returns, a period of time we call the church age, where we're living now, all of that is the last days. And John tells us that during this time, there will be lesser Antichrist and the spirit of Antichrist, and it will try to penetrate, infiltrate through false teachers, false prophets, the church of Jesus Christ. In the words of verses 22 and 23, the spirit of Antichrist is this, who is the liar, the one who denies 
that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. More than any other doctrine, the spirit of Antichrist, the lesser Antichrist, and the final Antichrist will be denying the exclusive nature of the gospel, that salvation is only solely uniquely by faith in Jesus Christ, accepting his death on the cross as the payment of our confessed sin, his resurrection as evidence of life after the grave, as he empowers us to turn from sin, repent from sin, and towards righteousness. The spirit of Antichrist, lesser Antichrist, and the Antichrist will deny that. They'll try and take our eyes off of the centrality of the gospel because if we don't embrace the gospel, we cannot be transformed, we cannot be saved. And John tells us that the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more the spirit of Antichrist and lesser Antichrist will rise. Now I happen to believe that the Antichrist, the final Antichrist, will be revealed during the Great Tribulation. I believe in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, that Christ will come down, the dead bodies of Christians will be raised to be reunited with the souls that are already in heaven and believers in Christ will be taken from the earth and then we'll go into Revelation 6 to 19 where we have the seals and the trumpets, the bulls, the, the hard, uh, terrible time of the tribulation and halfway through that, if not earlier, the Antichrist will be revealed. He goes by a lot of names. Daniel, in Daniel 7, calls this Antichrist the little horn. Uh, Paul, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1-4, he calls the Antichrist the man of lawlessness. It will be a human man that is indwelt by Satan and does Satanized evil. John himself, four times, calls the Antichrist Antichrist in First and 2 John. In the book of Revelation, John calls the Antichrist the beast from the bottomless pit in Revelation 11 and the beast of the sea in Revelation 13. And in Revelation 13, 18, he tells us that there will be a mark, an identification, a number 666 that will be a part of the Antichrist and will identify his followers. And a day is coming as a committed pre-tribulation, pre-millennialist. I think that day is during that tribulation. We have lesser antichrist now. We have the spirit of antichrist now. But the antichrist is eventually going to come. But they all have the same message. They try and take our eyes off of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone and put our minds on lesser things to divide the church, to lead people away from salvation and towards a crisis eternity. That's the spirit of Antichrist. And John tells us that a few ways to identify lesser Antichrist or the spirit of Antichrist is that they might start well, but they abandon the faith. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. Let me read verse 19. 
He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For had they been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain, obvious, that they are not of us. Now, we're not talking about somebody who leaves a Bible-centered church and goes to another Bible-centered church. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about an individual who at one time proclaimed Christ, but then wandered from the faith and eventually not only backslides, but says, I deny salvation by faith in Christ alone. John says they didn't lose their salvation. They didn't slip away. They didn't slide away. John says they went out from us because they actually were never a part of us because if they had been a part of us, they would have abided in Christ. It's not a loss of salvation. It's being duped, either self-duped or duping others that one believes in Christ. In this regard, I think of Joshua Harris. Several decades ago, Joshua Harris released a book that was well read by many. I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And Joshua Harris was not only an author, but he was a pastor of a church, I believe in Maryland, that grew quite large, a couple thousand people. And Joshua Harris seemed to be a believer in Christ. He was a pastor. He wrote an influential Christian book. But more recently, Joshua Harris divorced his wife and left his family, as he says, for no reason. I just got tired of them. He embraced a morality that is quite different than what Scripture allows. And he is denied that salvation is by faith in Christ alone. Joshua Harris duped us. He did not dupe God. He was a wolf in sheep's clothing. Now, I'm not saying that if someone gets a divorce, suffers a divorce, they're an unbeliever. It happens all the time. I'm not saying that if somebody falls into immorality for a season, she or he is an unbeliever. It happens all the time. But the evidence that Joshua Harris was not a believer is that he now denies the exclusive nature of the gospel. He denies the deity of Christ. He denies that salvation by faith is in Christ alone. And so John is very clear. He says, it's now plain to us. He went out from us because he actually never belonged to us. He didn't slip away, he didn't slide away, he didn't lose his salvation. He never had salvation. Can a believer backslide? <laughs> well, I'm exhibit A, right? Look at First and Second Corinthians. It's a church full of mess-ups we can all relate. But verse 19 says, They went out from us that it may become plain that they were not of us. Verse 24 says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. In other words, we can backslide. We can take three steps back. But eventually we're going to take two steps forward and then another couple steps forward. Eventually, God will persevere in us. There will be fruit. There will be transformation. There will be change. That doesn't mean we don't mess up. It doesn't mean we don't backslide. But the overall progression of our life, if we truly know Christ, 
is a step forward, a step forward, a step forward, even as we take several steps back. So what does a true Christ follower look like? Verse 20, it says that they are anointed by the Holy Spirit or the Holy One. This isn't something that is charismatic or anti-charismatic. That's not what it means at all. It means that if you, I, we truly have placed our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit has resided in us. I love the way Paul put it in uh, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. He said, In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, what happened when you believed in Christ? You were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, not the likelihood, not the hope. He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. These verses say that if you truly know Christ, the Holy Spirit is residing in you and me. And yes, we may backslide, we may slip, we may slide, we may take some steps backward, but there will be an overall progression and a transformation. But the spirit of Antichrist is one that is a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's one that denies eventually the deity of Christ, salvation by faith in Christ. It denies those things and instead embraces not an exclusive nature of the gospel, but inclusive. You can get to heaven in a multiplicity of ways. The Bible says, no, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The spirit of Antichrist might be one like Joseph Smith, who many years ago in upstate New York claimed that he had found tablets of hieroglyphics and he read those tablets and wrote the Book of Mormon. Of course, he was testifying eventually in a New York court and they brought some pictures of hieroglyphics. He couldn't read a single one. So then he talked about spectacles that would allow him to read hieroglyphics, but he had lost the spectacles. But what did Joseph Smith teach? He taught that Jesus Christ is not infinite. He is a created being. And that we need to work out the salvation, not work out the salvation we have, but we need to work for the salvation to acquire it. We need to earn our own salvation. That is a lesser antichrist. That is the spirit of antichrist. And John says, be careful, be alert, be watchful, because the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more antichrist that will rise up, more the spirit of antichrist will try and penetrate the church. And eventually, I think during the tribulation, the antichrist will be revealed. Who is the antichrist? I don't know. We've got to be very careful. The church has been kind of embarrassed in this regard. <laughs> we have identified all sorts of people as the Antichrist through our history, haven't we? Uh, uh, Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes, or several Roman emperors, whether they be Nero or Domitian. Uh, we have identified a number of popes and Pope Leo X identified Martin Luther as the Antichrist and Henry Kissinger and we've had Stalin and Pol Pot and Lenin and several premiers of China. 
We've had several presidents, more recently Ronald Reagan and Obama. All sorts of individuals have been identified as the Antichrist. Again, I believe the, the Antichrist will not be revealed until the tribulation. So I think we're rather silly to identify the Antichrist, but the spirit of Antichrist and false teachers we can identify. Because John says the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more infiltrators will come into the church of Christ. In this regard, I think of an art forger, the most famous modern art forger. His name is Mark Landis. Mark Landis uh, suffers from schizophrenia. He also suffers from bipolar disorder. But he is brilliant. And he has an encyclopedic understanding of art. He's also an incredible artist. And he looks at masterpieces under microscope and under all sorts of magnification. And he can repeat what he has seen. And then he can age these masterpieces that are now forgeries. We are told that no less than 45 museums in the United States have had forgeries that they thought were masterpieces done by Mark Landis. He knows exactly what to do. Not only is he a magnificent artist who can imitate to the smallest detail, but he also dresses up as a Jesuit priest. He goes to a museum, and in the name of his deceased parents, he offers the museum this masterpiece for free and even talks about future philanthropic uh, offerings that will come to the museum. And one curator said he knows exactly how to hit us. He hits us in our soft spot. Not only can he imitate with the greatest of detail, but he offers to give us the masterpieces and even offers future money in the future. And so Mark Landis is the greatest forger, but he's an imposter. He's an imposter. And John is warning us not about art imposters, but imposters, wolves in sheep's clothing, false teachers, false preachers, false prophets, false teaching, lesser antichrist, the spirit of antichrist, and someday the coming, the antichrist. So how are we to respond? Well, let me offer a few thoughts. First, I think sometimes we are too quick to embrace the latest and greatest. Without knowing the character of the individual who is teaching, because she or he is a great teacher, we become disciples and we read their books and we listen to their podcasts. And I'm not going to name names, but we all have been duped, right? But most of the time, most of the time, when one of these preachers has fallen, we've seen evidence of it prior for a decade or more. And yet the public ignores it because they're a good teacher. A board ignores it because the crowds come. And that is a lesser antichrist. That is the spirit of antichrist. And John says, be careful about the shiny, the latest and greatest. You want to listen to individuals, not only who teach straight from the Bible, but whose character you can evaluate. Second, John says, you need to evaluate what's being taught. I think of Luke in Acts 17.10. He talks about 
the Thessalonians who would listen, the Bereans in Thessalonica who would listen to Paul teaching, and then they would go home, and they would compare what Paul taught to the scrolls. And Luke says that they were noble. We should be listening to messages and then making sure the messages square with the Word of God. And now we're not looking for little tiny little mistakes. We're not heresy hunters, but we're looking for where what's being taught does not square with the Word of God. We ought to be doing that with sermons and Sunday school lessons and young adult and Gem 180 and One Way Club and mother of preschoolers and women of real devotion and all of the Bible studies. We ought to be comparing what is taught to the Word of God. We ought to be Bereans because that is noble. So know the character. Compare the teaching to the Word of God. Third, examine oneself. We need to make sure we're abiding in Christ and not just coasting. If we're just coasting, we're being disobedient to the Lord. Or maybe for some, a few, we've even duped ourselves to believe that we are born again when we have not truly placed our faith in Christ. And so I've got to be asking myself questions like this. So do you. Is my prayer life more alive today than a year ago? Do I find myself more in love with the Lord now than a year ago? Am I in the word more now than a year ago? Some of those besetting sins, has God been working in and through me? So I've seen some incremental victories now that I didn't have a year ago. We need to be abiding in Christ. Fourth, we need to know that the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more antichrist and spirit of antichrist that will arise. It's just going to happen. And so we have to be diligent. We have to be on our guard. Culture is pulling further and further and further from biblical truths. We've got to be in the word, in prayer, in fellowship, and make it the priority of our lives. Or we will soon wander with the spirit of Antichrist and lesser Antichrists that are all around us. We have a fearsome enemy. He's a defeated enemy. He's infinitely less than God. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But we have an enemy. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He says, be sober-minded and watchful. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So we've got to be sober-minded and watchful. We've got to be in the Word, in prayer. I love the way James puts it in James 4, 7. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. How do you resist? With the Word of God, with prayer. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So John wants us to know that the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more Antichrist, the more spirit of Antichrist, and eventually the Antichrist that will enter this world. And we need to be alert. We need to be diligent. We need to be in the Word, in prayer, in fellowship. And we've got to do self-examination. We've got to be Bereans, comparing what is taught to the Word of God. And we've got to be less enamored 
with the new, the shiny, and make sure that we're evaluating the character of the teachers that are building in to our lives. Let's pray. Father God, we readily acknowledge letters are Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, and the enemy of our soul, Satan, who will someday indwell a human as the Antichrist. Help us to be alert in prayer, in the word, in fellowship, like the Bereans who examine what is taught against the word of God, not to be enamored with the latest and greatest and shiny, but to always make sure that someone is indwelt by the Spirit, the Holy One, your Spirit, and teaching truth. Father, transform us. Allow us to abide in you and to see growth, see fruit. And if we don't, to examine first whether we know your Son as Savior, and if we do, how to get out of some disobedience, empowered by your Spirit towards obedience. Father, allow your Spirit to guide us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.